Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me this early Sunday morning in this Good morning. recording session. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, oh, when I really commit to recording at 9 a.m.? Yeah, right. On a Sunday morning? Uh, we didn't stay out too late, though. Things have uh, not been too crazy lately, so. Good. Mike is in town this weekend, so um, it's been fun. Yeah. Get out and do some things. Nice. So. Lovely, lovely, lovely. How was your weekend so far? Um, it was good. Auburn won a huge basketball game yesterday, so they are now first place in their conference, which is amazing. Wow. Um, yeah, so I got a good work in while I was watching the second half of the game. I, f- like, I find if I go either get on the bike or like go to the gym and do the elliptical while watching, I don't realize... Like, I don't notice how much I hate working out because <laughs> I'm, like, super into the game. Such a good idea. That's <laughs> yeah. brilliant. Yeah. So <laughs> so I got a pretty good workout in yesterday. So it was good. Excellent. Yeah. Gotta love that. Right. Um, today we're going to talk about some interesting stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the main case that I have to talk for today, to talk about today, is in Darcy's wheelhouse. I... I specifically researched and looked at this case because I knew that she was going to want to talk about this. But this case in itself is very, very interesting as well. But this is the case of Robert Newlander, the doctor who, uh, at this point, allegedly killed his wife. And this case took place in Syracuse, New York. And September 17th, 2012, police get a 911 call from a woman, a young woman, who says her mom fell in the shower and that her dad is with her mom. And this is 23-year-old Jenna Newlander. And she was claiming that she's completely freaking out in this phone call, as you probably would with Mm -hmm. such a thing. So let me play the 911 call for you. Where's your emergency? My mother, I don't know if she's breathing, but she's laying on the ground in the shower. Okay. Okay. So you don't know if she's breathing. I don't know if she's. Is she unconscious? I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. I need to go over there and see if she's okay. Okay. How do you know she's down there? My dad. My dad's over there. He's. She's, she's over there. Can you go to her now and stand beside with me? I need to put you on hold. I'm not. I, it's like a house call. Oh my God! He was gone. Anyway, so that was the 911 call, and I don't know if you could hear clearly or not, but the point where she's saying, don't move her, he's moving yeah. her, don't move the body, and he is clearly moving the body. So. Yeah. Let me jump right into this. Um, Dr. Robert Newlander claims that his wife fell in the shower and he took her into the bathroom because he or excuse me, the bedroom, because he claimed there was more light so that he could perform CPR. Mm. Leslie died shortly after the emergency medical folks showed up. This case, I mean... Just listening to the 911 call, you can hear that this is pretty traumatic. Yeah. 
Um, prior to this incident happening, the couple was very active in the community with lots of charities they were involved in, and Dr. Newlander had delivered thousands of babies in Syracuse, New York. He was a well-known doctor. Now, initially, the medical examiner makes a ruling of accidental death due to slip and fall in the shower, and that's where this 911 call comes in. When the police show up to the scene, because they have to investigate something like this, there is blood on all the walls. Additionally, the blood is angled on the walls with splatter patterns that the doctor cannot explain. If there was a slip and fall, you would not have splatter patterns on walls, okay? There is also impact splatter near near the bed, and up the walls near the bed, leading police to believe that there has been a violent encounter with this couple. This home is massive. Obviously, this guy was a well-known and well-respected doctor and made a significant amount of money. You can kind of I'll post a picture in Instagram of the home. It's just they were very a very wealthy couple. They have three children, and the youngest of which is Jenna Newlander, the 23-year-old, and she lives at home with the parents. So you wouldn't think that somebody would attempt to some sort of foul play with your 23-year-old daughter down the hall in the house. Well, but, if it's a big enough house, they might she might not have heard anything, right. you know. It was a massive house right. and the fact that they had different phones and in, in rooms to communicate just shows you how large and massive this house was. But evidently, from what I understand of this case, Dr. Robert Newlander screamed out for help when he said he found his wife on the floor of the shower. This was how this whole thing initially started out. This was in the morning. But 61-year-old Leslie had a massive head wound, and paramedics came thinking they would find her near the shower. But when they got there, they found she was on the bedroom floor close to the bed, and there was blood in different areas pooled on the rug, splattered on the walls, and next to the bed. As I had mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. there was a splatter pattern near the bed. And after finding her on the floor, he had carried her 60 feet, he said, to comfortably perform CPR. So, number one, he's a doctor. Mm -hmm. Would a doctor not get it that you really shouldn't move somebody who's (laughs) injured like that? I mean, I I went through lifeguard training when I was 20, and I learned it then. So, yeah, you would think somebody who went through medical school would know that you don't move somebody if they have a potential head injury. Right. And then secondly, to say that I had to move her to a better lit area, you're in the bathroom. Isn't that one of the best lit areas in the house? Also, if you're just, if you're performing CPR, why do you need, well, like a well lit area? Right. That I don't, I don't understand. I, I get moving her out of the shower to do it because, you know, a shower might not, you might not have the space to be able to lay her out to be able to do a, right. a movement in CPR. But to say, you know, I'm going to move her into an entirely different room and carry her 60 feet away from where she fell, yeah. like, just doesn't make it's, sense. It's not me. lining up already. And this is why the police were called in, because they were just all these weird little things, the blood splatter, the movement, um, and all the different things. That, and that's why the police were called in. But the medical examiner says that the injury matched hitting, with hitting a head on a shower bench, which was the story that Robert Newlander said. So she slipped and fell and hit her head on a bench in the shower was his story. Okay. So the, initially, the medical examiner's like, yep, everything's good. 
Um, but the CPR, the cops and the paramedics that showed up said that they had never seen trauma like this from a shower fall before. Yeah. And Jenna's account, uh, you know, and telling her father not to move the body also led them to believe that something is not quite right. Right. Like your 23 year old daughter is telling her doctor, a physician not to move the body. Why does the father, doctor don't move the body? Right. Do, doc, the her body, her right? physician father not to move the body. And yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Right. And so they start to interview friends and family, and the friends say that these guys seemed like an absolutely perfect couple. Leslie was vivacious, energetic. She was so cool, and they were unpretentious, and they were so giving, and they had been part of the philanthropic community in New York for a long period of time. Robert was a highly regarded gynecologist and obstetrician in Syracuse, and very kind and supportive couple, very compassionate and knowledgeable, and their family unit was very tight-knit. They had Emily and Brian and Jenna from, excuse me, Emily and Brian were Roberts from his first marriage, and then Ari and Jenna were from his marriage to Leslie. So they had four kids total, two stepchildren and two children between the two of them, and they had been married for 28 years. Wow, okay. So... It's not a short marriage, not a short period of time that they'd been together, a very well-established relationship, obviously. And Leslie was a very athletic person. And despite the fact that she was 61, she was very young, kind of in appearance and very energetic. So you can kind of imagine an elderly person having an incident where they slip in the shower and cause some damage. But like a young and athletic person, it's it's much less common to have mm-hmm. that sort of a situation. But in any case, a few months after Leslie's death... A tip comes in, and this is about three months after the death, and it's an unusual call from Leslie's friends who are concerned that this was not an accident and that despite the fact that they appeared outwardly to be sort of in an ideal marriage, that this was very troubled. And they pulled in a forensic doctor to look at the blood and to kind of determine what's going on because people knew, some people that were very close to them knew that they were experiencing financial issues. And... There was not necessarily enough any evidence about cheating or another woman, but sometimes when you have an extremely wealthy couple and there are sudden and serious financial issues or even long-term issues that have gotten very, very serious, Mm -hmm. that can be a recipe for disaster in a marriage. And because the financial issues like that can lead to extensive stress between a couple. I mean, if financial finance in general is one of the number one reasons for divorce in the U.S. Yeah. But in recent years as well, Dr. Newlander's once thriving medical practice had become troubled and there were insurance company battles. And he was now delivering about one half of the number of babies that he had been previously. So he was in some amount of trouble. And I'm not exactly sure what the insurance company battles were, whether there were some false claims or whether it was a sort of issue where insurance companies weren't paying out to him. So he wasn't making the sort of money or maybe he'd been dropped from the insurance network. It doesn't really say specifically what that is. Yeah, I mean, it could have been anything from like an insurance company not like he wasn't listed as a provider on their insurance company anymore or like, you know, like trying to fit, like it could have just been changes than that, like in kind of like the business part of insurance or it could have been like a criminal act. Like it, we don't, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really say, but the DA also got an anonymous letter saying that Dr. Newlander was not a good guy and that Leslie had actually been trying to break things off and she wanted a divorce. It just said not a so, good guy. 
didn't. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So then the forensic pathologist starts to look at the files and the severity of this injury compared to the explanation of what happened does not match up. Yeah. So essentially, this was a penetrating wound toward the back of Leslie's head that was so severe that blood had pooled in her eyes. Hmm. So um, no wounds like this are usually seen in ER and by medical technicians unless there's a car accident or a fall from a great distance, like 20 stories, or if there's a beating with a heavy object or a heavy impact yeah, create this. that kind of like the blood, like hemorrhaging in the eyes. And I've tried to look this up, like to actually get the actual medical cause of death. It's not it doesn't I haven't seen anything other than blunt force trauma injury to the head. Um, but like if there was a cerebral hemorrhage or something like that, I've been trying to look up, but I haven't found that. But that kind of thing where it's an injury to the back of the head that causes blood pooling in the eyes is usually related to like a high impact, um, like a high high velocity impact. So that would be like like you know, fall from a height, motor vehicle accident, like you said, or assault, you know, it's like the fourth most common listed, you know, reasons for that kind of a thing. But it's not something that happens from a fall. And when I say fall from a height, I mean, like, fall down the stairs or fall off the top of like off a ladder or something, not like fall from where you're standing on the ground to the ground. Like that's not that's we got to figure a slip and fall in the shower is what, two feet, a couple feet. When you slip and fall in the shower, So, right? yeah, and I want to kind of go back to something that I kind of thought about when you were talking about balance issues, you know, possibly she felt like if, if, we're, if we're to believe that this is a slip and fall, which clearly I think it should be obvious that neither of us believes this is a slip and fall. But so from my understanding and from, I believe I saw this in like a 48 hours, wasn't this like a walk-in shower? It's not a bathtub shower, right? Yeah, so yeah, it was a pretty big, you know, and yeah. I don't know if you've ever been into like a really wealthy house like that. Typically what you find is, and I'm going to take my shower at home for an example. Our shower is probably about five feet by yeah. five feet. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty large on the inside. You open uh, like a glass door in the front and you step into the shower and you take like a couple steps before you get to the point where you're actually right. underneath the shower head. And then there is a bench off to the left-hand side of our shower in the corner that stands about two feet high off the ground, Mm -hmm. two to three feet high, and sticks out probably a foot and a half, two feet, Mm -hmm. and the bench is maybe three or four feet wide. So you could uh, several people could probably sit down on this bench. You could probably fit 10 or 15 people comfortably into this shower. It's it's a large space. Right. And it's not the sort of thing, like a bathtub shower is very, very easily... You could slip in that, and I have slipped in the bathtub many times Mm -hmm. and had instances where I've fallen, but you don't typically in those sorts of scenarios with a shower, the large shower like that, have a sort of ability to slip and fall in the same way that you would if you're stepping into a bathtub sort of a situation like you were saying. Right. Yeah. Like, and so even if we are to assume 61 is still relatively young, but your balance does decrease, you know, as you age. So even if we are to assume Correct. she had balance issues, she's not stepping over anything like she would be the side of a bathtub. It's no. a, she's walking from one Correct. flat surface to another flat surface. There's no slope like there is at the bathtub. It's just not Correct. a conceivable scenario. And typically the other thing is if you're going to slip when you, when you're in the shower, it's usually getting in or out. And it seems right. to be his story that she was just in the shower and fell. Right. Which is also very so uncommon. Very, very. Yeah. Excellent points. Excellent points. I'm so glad that you brought that yeah. up because those are things that I think most people with a normal unscientific brain don't think of like myself. Like I didn't think of that either, but that is so true. Yeah. But I think what's also important is 
you can look at and you can research online in very extens- in a very extensive manner what an injury looks like when you fall and hit something like the edge of a shower mm-hmm. seat. And that would cause it's a like penetrating a, injury. It's not a close. That wouldn't right, be a close a, injury, you know. But it would be a linear yes. type of an injury, is my understanding, yeah. rather than a um, like a something where if you hit somebody with a with an object yeah. like a crowbar, for example, or a bat, that's going to be a very different injury than if you impact your head on the side of a flat square kind of a bench, right? Yes. And so, and there's actually research that I have read in the past. I didn't pull anything for this one because I was delinquent, but um, there's research that in the past that even like the two things that you just use as an example, crowbars or a baseball bat, they cause very different patterns of, of injury when you're talking right. about a skull fracture. So I'm assuming there was some sort of skull fracture. It didn't, I haven't read that, but you would also, so you would see a skull fracture that would be indicative of the shape of the object that she either fell onto or hit or was hit with. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. you would see kind of like a, a fracture spiral pattern. Either it would be like a radial pattern where it's like you you have like the impact made from a circle, like a hammer or a baseball bat, and then it would spiral out kind of radially, or it would be like linear, like you're talking about, which would be a, the assumption if she fell on the edge of the bench, right? So it is very easy to pinpoint and narrow down what happens when a certain surface hits a a human body. Okay. It's, it's something that is very, 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 very well known in scientific circles, what certain things look like when they impact the human body. And I'm very, very surprised that this doctor didn't understand that. So, I mean, and and that's assuming that he's guilty, but we can't assume that yet because he has not been found guilty Mm -hmm. yet. But in any case, the the forensic pathologist does believe that this was a homicide Mm -hmm. and this was a blunt force trauma, head injury, assault. And, Additionally, besides the fact that the injury to her head and her body looks very different from what it typically looks like when somebody falls in the shower, there's also the interplay of the blood splattering in the bedroom. Right. Well, even the blood splatter in the bathroom, like blood doesn't splatter from a penetrating head injury unless you were to hit like an artery and... Well, you get and pretty, that's the thing. You got to get under the skull to hit the artery. You know what I mean? They don't. They're not. We got. We got to dig. We yeah. got to dig into this a little yeah. bit because there, there's some excuses that he's giving for mm, that. So let's okay. let's dig into this a little bit. So, um, about six months after Leslie's death, police go back to the death scene. Six months wow. before they do like the actual analysis. I think initially they believed that it was an accident mm-hmm. and they kind of, they checked it out, but there were people that were doubting it. Right. So initially they did, the DA didn't move forward with any charges, but then when they had gone back to the death scene, the house was now unoccupied and had been sold. Really? So he immediately sold the house, right? Interesting. Okay. They found, despite the fact that they had sold this house, they still found blood all over the back of the headboard. So the bed was still there and blood splatter on the blinds and behind the bed. So evidently the way their, their bedroom was situated is they had this big, huge bed and then they had a window behind the bed with blinds and they found blood not only all over the back of the headboard, but blood splatter on the blinds behind the bed as well. Wow. And during this whole time, Dr. Newlander is like, hey, I've got this hotshot attorney. I have nothing to hide. Go ahead. Do whatever you need to do. I didn't do anything wrong. Um, he is now retired by the time they go forward with this case, six months after the death. So within six months after Leslie's death, the doctor is retired, and he sits down with investigators and the DA and acknowledges that there were problems in his marriage. The two had been sleeping separately, and they had talked about a trial separation. Okay. So all was not 
well in that household. All was not exceptionally wonderful as people on the outside perhaps thought because of what they saw. Sure. But Robert claims that despite that fact that everything was peaceful and they were a loving couple despite their marital problems, which, eh. (laughs) I tend to doubt that just a little bit because I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship that's kind of on the rocks and there's that tenseness between the two of you and it's not a loving sort of a situation. It's tense. It's, you know, you're sleeping in separate bedrooms. Right. So clearly there's some issues there. Right. If everything was copacetic and wonderful, you'd still be sleeping in the same room. And, and you know, anyway, uh, bah, 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 moving forward. So September 16th, 2012, the night before Leslie's death, they had had a family gathering with friends and their children because their son Ari was going back to college and Jenna was still at home with the parents And evidently the couple had, and this is Robert's account of the night before and what happened leading up to Leslie's death. Okay. Robert says that the couple said goodnight and they gave each other a kiss and then they went to sleep in separate bedrooms. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, Dr. Newlander says that early the next morning, September 17th, 2012, he got up before light and got dressed and went to Green Lakes, which is a nearby straight a nearby state park for a jog. He then said he brought Leslie uh, her usual cup of morning coffee when he got back from his run and he heard the shower. So he left the coffee for her on the nightstand in her bedroom. Okay. Okay. Or wait, no, he was sleeping in a separate bedroom. She was sleeping in the master bedroom, but he left the coffee on the nightstand in the master bedroom. Was it typical for him to go for a run? Yes. He said that this was all usual behavior, that this was normal. Okay. One hour later, he returns to check on Leslie. One hour later. Long, I was almost swore. I was gonna say, that doesn't make it's sense. It's a long to me. shower. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Right? He then goes into the bathroom and finds Leslie on the shower floor and starts CPR. He says he tried calling 911, but the bathroom phone was not working. So he ran and got Jenna to call for help. This was about 8 25 a.m. Okay. When he tells his daughter to call 911. Let me get back to Leslie. Dr. Robert Newlander said that he could not see anything in the bathroom, that the lighting was so terrible that he needed to move the body in order to perform CPR properly. There's no way I believe that. Jen- right. Well, Jenna tells him, stop moving the damn body. Like, are you kidding me right now? But evidently, he moved the body into the bedroom, laid her down, and began mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Then he moved her again. <laughs> it's just like there was a lot of movement yeah. in his body for someone who allegedly has a head injury and for someone who's a doctor who should know better than to be moving around somebody who was very, very seriously yeah. injured. I put, this is bull <laughs> everyone, everyone knows not to move head, neck injuries. Yeah. This guy has been a doctor for 30 years. Why would he need to place his wife next to the bed for CPR? Right. And there's a reason for that. Police believe that hours before the actual death that the doctor had assaulted his wife in the bedroom, that he had chased her. They'd gotten into a fight and he'd chased her into the bathroom. And this made up, he made up the shower story. Hmm. So he had assaulted her in the bedroom, hit her with something to the point where it knocked her out or knocked, you know, Mm -hmm. created that significant amount of damage to the back of her head. And that's, that's the blood splatter on the back of the Mm -hmm. blinds and the bed and everything like that. And 
chased her into the bathroom and was like, crap, now how am I going to explain the stuff in the bedroom? That's why he carried her into the bedroom. So there's clearly a blood trail from assault from blood splatter all over the place and pools of blood in both the bedroom and the bathroom. So he has to figure out how he's going to explain that. And it is also likely that the doctor didn't realize that there was blood in the bedroom because initially when he assaulted her, they believed it was very early in the morning before it was light outside, before he Mm. allegedly went on this run, right? So he's not seeing all these little splatters and flecks of blood from the initial assault until he gets back from his run and then is like, crap, now what am I going to do? With this. I mean, how is he going to explain it in the first place? Like, you know what I mean? Like, not only did it go wrong and he has to figure out a way to explain the front of the bedroom to the bathroom, but how is he going to explain it at all? I mean, well, and then he also has to get rid of a potential murder weapon. Right. So go for a run, get rid of the murder weapon on the run. So you still think he went for the run? Figure out a way to dispose of the body. I do. Okay. I I, I think that there's evidence that he did go for the run. I don't think there's any doubt that he went for that run. Okay. But I think he did it for a different reason than. He says. Okay. Okay, so the police believe that he assaulted her in the bedroom and, and chased her and made up the shower story and then called the daughter in. They believe that he called his daughter in for a witness yeah. because that would cover his story. Yeah. And that he covered his wife into the bedroom, covering up the blood trail from the assault and also to explain the blood spatter in the bedroom because it was likely he didn't see that there was blood there in the dark early of the morning. Additionally, when the police came, the sheets were clean. And the housekeeper says that she had not put those sheets on the bed when she had been in to clean up previously. She was absolutely confident someone had changed the sheets. So they believe that during this run that Dr. Newlander took in the morning that he got rid of the sheets and the the murder weapon. Had they speculated what the murder weapon was yet? I don't know. And it doesn't say. Okay. But they say that... uh, Somewhere in Green Lakes is where you're going to find the sheets and the murder weapon. But he clearly did a, a, a very good job hiding them. But the medical examiner then changed the death from accidental to homicide. And this was about two years after Leslie's death that they officially changed the death. Okay. The medical examiner officially changed the cause of death. And Robert is then charged with murder. The prosecutor clearly has this theory that he had moved the body after death to make it appear that she had died from a fall from the sh- in the shower rather than what Mm. her real cause of death was. And the problem is, though, Leslie's kids and the couple's children, or excuse me, Robert's children and Leslie's kids with Robert believe Robert. They fully believe that this man didn't do anything wrong and that he's being prosecuted for no reason. Hmm. Initially, the doctor was free on about $100,000 bail, and he arrived to court every day with his kids and Leslie's sister and mother and her brother, and all of her family was 100% behind him. He's Dr. Newlander and his attorney say there's there's no weapon and there's no clear cut motive, but they also acknowledge it'd be very risky to take this to the jury because of the blood splatter. Because it kind of shows like there wouldn't be an accident if there's blood splatter like that. Yeah. And the the blood stains on the scene are actually telling people a lot of different things. So let's take a a step back and kind of break down the blood stain and blood splatter evidence. So some very, very experienced blood spatter experts went into this scene. And like I mentioned earlier, the house had been sold, but nothing had been done to it. There'd been no remodeling, no painting. So they were still able to find all the blood Hmm. on the scene where this body had been found. Okay. Just to reiterate, there was splatter on the headboard, items on the nightstand, south of the bed, 
The blinds above the bed splatter on the south wall and seven feet south of the bed. So the blood spatter had traveled up to seven feet away from the actual bed itself. Okay. Seven feet from the bed. So in order to get blood that far from the area where the person was, like, you've got to have a pretty traumatic type of an injury. Am am I right on that? You are, but I'm also wondering if that... That blood that was seven feet away from the bed. I'm also wondering if that wasn't like drop drip blood from the murder weapon, like up in the air, seven feet. Oh, up in the air. oh, oh! I thought you meant like on the floor. Okay, yes. Then that would no. be like a high, uh, like again, a high velocity impact. Like somebody grabbing with a weapon and hitting somebody, and then the blood on the weapon yeah. flies up onto the right. Yeah. Um, there were a hundred splatter stains on the wall wow. around the bed. And experts believe that this is conclusive proof that Leslie had been attacked in the bedroom because you wouldn't get blood spatters like that from doing CPR. No. Not with a head injury so to the impact, back of her head. Right, right. So impact spatter, which is force applied to liquid blood. So an example of this would be like if you take some liquid and put it in your hand and then you punch that blood, the force of your punch impacts the liquid and sends the blood flying into smaller drops around your hand. And this radiates out in multiple directions according to the shape of whatever object hits that little pool of blood and how hard you hit that pool of blood. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of a little brief kind of explanation of impact spatter. Um, So do you want to talk about the validity of that now or later? And we can talk about it after I get done okay. with this part. All right. But the, the police actually recreated with different samples to try to get the same splatters that they found on the scene. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to try to see if they could recreate this and put blood six to, 70, six to seven feet away from a potential body. Mm-hmm. Right. So they see these pictures and they see where the blood is in this bedroom. And they're like, we want to see if we can recreate this, which is so cool. I love how they're able to do that now. Um, with body, with fake bodies and with people coming in and acting as they were the defendant or the, mm-hmm. the person that actually did the damage. But the defense says that it is not possible to determine if this is an accident, an accident or homicide from the blood, that there's not enough close-up pictures this late in the game. Okay. Right. right. That's, their, that's their excuse. Yeah. That's a pretty valid Other argument. Evidence, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But other evidence collected months after and... After the emergency personnel came through, they say that that's corrupted the crime scene, mm-hmm. that the EMTs created much of the blood splatter when they peeled off their gloves and cast them aside after they dealt with the body. No, that's what they're, that's what his excuse is. <laughs> and that additionally, the doctor removed his shirt as he tried to save his wife because he got blood from her onto his shirt. They took his shirt off and threw it and that that created the blood splatter also, no. as well. Um, but the shirt was never found. <laughs> this shirt that he supposedly took off and peeled off and threw was never found well, by anyone. Why was his taking his shirt off more important than doing CPR on his wife? <laughs> I'm not sure. He was like, my shirt was wet and bloody and I had to like take it off. I have to, to get this off CPR. right now. <laughs> sure so thing. prosecutors say that EMTs would not have flung off their gloves and the doctor wouldn't have created this amount of blood by just taking off his shirt. That's just crazy. Yeah. Um, and this whole thing with the EMTs flinging off their gloves, like... That's laughable. I think, um, in, 
It is because in, in most training courses, the EMTs are trained not to do that for that exact reason. They don't want to like corrupt a potential well, scene that needs to be investigated. Not only that, but like if you've ever done anything in a medical setting where you are wearing gloves, you, there's a way to take off your gloves so that you like you take a, the glove off of one hand and then you hold that glove in your hand, your gloved hand, when you were then remove the other hand so that it forms like a ball. So that way you are not right. touching the contaminated stuff that's on your gloved hands when you throw the gloves away. Like, that's just like... No no emergency personnel is going to want to fling blood no. all over the place and potentially get it into their face right. and they're on their body or onto somebody else's face. Right. So they're not going to fling their gloves like that. Exactly. That's ridiculous. Um, but then they also say that Leslie had vertigo and that... <laughs> confirmed her trainer and other people confirmed that she had vertigo, which is a balance issue and that this particular condition ran in her family and that it would not have been unusual for her to fall in the shower against the side of the bench. If she had vertigo. All right. Let me know when you um, want me to poke holes in that. <laughs> I am like, <laughs> I've had vertigo before and it never caused me to fall in the shower. Uh, it would made me dizzy and nauseous, mm-hmm. but it never caused me to fall. So I'm kind of, unclear as to how that would necessarily cause her to fall slip and fall in the shower but in any case that's and he's essentially throwing out five six seven different excuses for potentially why and just seeing what could have happened (laughs) yeah like seeing whatever noodles stick to the wall all right prosecution says that there were at least two blows consistent with a strike against a straight edge hmm a simple linear fracture with bleeding should have been what happened in this case. Okay. That's not what happened. There were multiple instances of injury and damage to the back of Leslie's head, according to court documents. There was also a complex depressed fracture here. So this does not add up to a slip and fall. There were also abrasions and scrapes on her cheek, bruises on her nose, cheeks, and, and bruises and scrapes on her neck. There were no injuries to her legs, back, knees, or elbows. So typically, when somebody falls in the shower, you don't get scrapes, bruises, and abrasions on, you know, a face if you've got an injury to the back of the head. You also would get injuries maybe to elbows or whatever they fall on and strike when they hit the ground. Yeah, like knees, hips, butt. Yeah. Yeah, or elbows especially Mm -hmm. because, you know, what if that benches it, there and you're kind of flailing right. to catch yourself, you'd hit something else, right? Yeah. But she had bruises, scrapes, and abrasions on her face and neck. Hard to get abrasions in the shower. Which, yeah, it just does not add up. The time of death, one doctor claimed it was about 7.30 a.m., but the DA says that it could have happened as early as 4.15 a.m. Okay. So... The doctor and the people that initially showed up said, oh, yeah, 7.30 a.m. is about the time of death. But according to experts that looked at the body after Mm -hmm. that, she could have died as early as around 4 o'clock in the morning, which would support the story that they got into a fight very early in the morning. Or perhaps they were fighting all night long after they got back from this gathering and that he just lost his stuff around 4 o'clock in the morning and just hit her, lost his temper and hit her, and then this happened. But again, that's all speculation. And if you're just responding to the scene of what you think is a fall in the shower, there's not really much for you to look into further in terms of cause of death if you're the responding coroner. 
or medical examiner. Like, you're just, okay, she fell in the shower. What time was she in the shower? 7.30. Okay, that seems like a reasonable time of death. Like, yeah. There's just not much more reason to look There's, into it if you don't suspect anything initially. And especially with, because he called his daughter mm-hmm. in, that made it look even more legitimized. Like, oh, this was an accident. This was just a terrible, awful accident. And, and that's one of the things that he did that was very intelligent, if he actually did commit this murder, was to call the daughter in because it just makes the whole thing look like just this tragic and terrible accident. Yeah. But two and a half years after Leslie died, 25-year-old Jenna defended her father... Um, she was the only quote unquote eyewitness, but I, I don't necessarily consider her an eyewitness because she didn't see her mother fall. Yeah, she didn't see the act. She would be like a witness after the fact, but she didn't actually see the act of the cause of death, whatever it be, fall or, or, or impact. Yeah, but she said that she saw and spoke with her mom around 2 a.m. And that she claims that despite what the housekeeper said, that the sheets that she saw on the bed were the same ones that she'd seen when she saw her mother around 2 a.m., hmm. that they hadn't been changed. Okay. Which I don't necessarily know that the daughter would have had enough focus to notice the sheets um, per se. Especially if they're like, situation. if they look similar. Yeah. Like, unless they're like black sheets and then all of a sudden there are white sheets on the bed. That you'd notice, but yeah. like if it's just like light colored sheets, I don't know that I would notice that. But somebody that is that's their responsibility, like the housekeeper, would notice something right. like that. And not to mention the fact that if you're traumatized and your mother just essentially died in front of you, yeah. like are you really going to be in the kind of shape where you're going to remember things around you, like the color of the sheets? I actually just talked about this, we, or we just talked about this in one of the classes I'm taking, and like eyewitness, eyewitness accounts, and one of the reasons that it's so difficult is because when you witness a traumatic event either being the victim or just witnessing it like you don't remember anything your mind just shuts right. out everything everything but the threat and like you can hear in her voice yeah. that like you she is shocked by how much blood there is like she you can hear yeah. that so yeah you know i just i don't i think you're right i don't know how how much she's looking at the bed sheets and i also i'm kind of disturbed by the amount of blood as well like how a slip and fall, would it really no. create that that amount of blood and pooling everywhere? Like, I just have a very, very hard time with that. Pooling, um, I can understand pooling because what I don't understand is is him moving her. Like, it, yes, it could pool with how much she supposedly was bleeding from this head injury, if you want to believe that it was from a fall. It would pool where she was laying, and he shouldn't have moved her with that much blood. Like, that's just the thing that, like, yeah. he just shouldn't have moved her. You know what I mean? So, but the, bla- the splatter doesn't, that, that doesn't, that's not. I just don't believe that the amount of blood that was found in different locations would have been able to have been created as quickly as no. it had been if he had just carried her body from the bathroom into the bedroom. No. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So there had to have been blood there already, and he put, brought her back there to try to cover up the fact that there was a lot of blood there already. Right. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, experts that analyzed this case actually believe that the daughter had convinced herself that her father was innocent, that he actually wasn't, that she had created this sort of protective world in her own mind where her dad couldn't have done this. She doesn't want to lose both her dad and her mom. She's had this very traumatic event. Absolutely. And that she's just, she's traumatized. That's totally believable. Uh, The DA suspects that the motive for this was that Leslie was leaving him and he didn't want to let her go. Uh, friends also say that Leslie was signing a lease for a new apartment the day after she died. Oh. She was supposed to sign that and that the hubby didn't want to let her leave. Do they know where that lease was? Like, could they find any evidence of that? 
Um, it was a friend that testified that she had spoken to her about that. Mm. They did not use this or the witness because they could not really show whether she was doing this by herself or whether the hubby was going to be included. Because as I mentioned earlier, remember they were having mm-hmm. financial issues. So there's some speculation that, and the defense claims that, hey, you know, if we were having financial issues and we were going to downsize that, you know, we were going to do it together Mm -hmm. and she wasn't going to go by herself. But Leslie's friend claims that Leslie was leaving him and that she was done and that he didn't want to have to split the assets because, you know, in in a divorce of that kind, it can be very contentious Mm -hmm. and he's going to have to split half of everything he has. And if there's already in financial, you know, crisis within this marriage and within this, this household, then he's going to get even less money. Right. And that maybe their debt, maybe their debt is more than what they actually have. And this means complete financial collapse for them as a couple and as individuals as well. So there's a little bit of motive there. So after three days of jury deliberation, the jury finds Robert guilty of murder. Mm-hmm. And Je- Jenna very dramatically stands up and says, I was there. You didn't do it. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to so, which like, That was not that yeah, wasn't cool. Sorry. I, I don't want to come off as being very judgmental and all that, but she was there, but she wasn't really there. Yeah. She, like she was there after. Yeah, she didn't see the act. <laughs> but yeah. So I find that statement just kind of ridiculous. But in any case, the attorney that Robert hired then gets on this like super, super hard and alleges that there was sure misconduct and that his client deserves a a new trial. The judge still upholds the conviction and the juror is... Um, because the juror had been undecided at the time and had taken her role very seriously. So he interviewed this juror and determines, hey, she took her role seriously. She's good. I've never understood how judges can just, like, make that call. Okay. Okay. Hang on. Hang on. There's more. There's more, though. But, like, so, again, the attorney alleges juror misconduct, says that this juror received texts about the case during the trial, they searched her phone. They found the text, one from her father and some from other people. And the one from her <gasps> father said, make sure he's found guilty. That's chilling. Okay. So the judge interviews this girl and looks at this and makes a determination that he's going to uphold this conviction, that the juror had been undecided at the time and that she had taken her role seriously throughout the trial and looked at the evidence and weighed things carefully and did not let those texts influence right. her. The judge determined that. Okay. So four months later, the sentencing for the hearing happens, and the, the um, max sentence would be 25 to life. And the family pleads for Robert Newlander, and they claim he's innocent, but he is sentenced to 20 years to life in New York State Prison. The judge calls him diabolical. <laughs> he calls him as diabolical as it gets. That he used his own daughter to cover up the murder, that this is pretty yeah. much, Yeah crazy anyway he he like really laid into him and was like you are an evil man and you used your daughter to cover up this and you were even more evil because of that the newlanders continue to stand by robert but october 2019 the new york court of appeals grants a new trial on the grounds of juror misconduct so at present robert newlander is currently free on bail awaiting a new trial date but let me Get into before we talk about before we break yeah. down in a little bit more analysis on the yeah 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 I was going to ask let me talk that. about okay. the juror, juror misconduct so evidently this juror exchanged seven thousand about the trial during the trial seven thousand yes 
And that is why the murder verdict was overturned. It was deemed so bad that the New York doctor who was convicted of killing his wife would have to be tried again. So uh, according to this article, I found this in New York Times. The article is titled, After Juror Exchanged 7,000 Texts, Murder Verdict is Overturned. This is by Ed Shanahan. Four years ago, a jury convicted Robert Newlander, a prominent doctor in central New York, of killing his wife in their suburban home, seemingly ended in a complicated case that had riveted the Syracuse area, but it's about to get more complicated. On the day of the verdict, an alternate juror contacted a lawyer for Mr. Newlander, and this led to the revelation that one of the jurors who actually was on the jury for the trial had voted to convict him of murder and had exchanged 7,000 texts with family and friends during the three-week trial. Hundreds of the texts involve aspects of the case, a clear violation of the judge's standard admonition that jurors do not discuss the matter until after the trial is over. On October 22nd, the New York Court of Appeals, the state's highest court, affirmed an appeals court decision last year that the conduct by the juror, Joanna Lorraine, was so bad that the conviction of Mr. Newlander, 68, should be set aside and he should get a new trial. The extensiveness and egregiousness of this disregard, deception, and dissembling occurring here has no alternate but to reverse the conviction, the seven-judge court said in its unanimous opinion. Alexander Shapiro, Mr. Newlander's lawyer for the appeal, welcomed the ruling. After spending three years in prison, her client was released on bail last year when the court ruled in his favor. He did surrender his medical license after being convicted, but we all know, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, he was already retired. Bob Newlander and his family greatly appreciate the Court of Appeals decision, which reaffirms that every defendant has the right to an impartial jury and a fair trial. Um, his attorney could not be reached for... Co- oh, wait. Uh, Miss Lorraine, the young juror, could not be reached for comment. The dist- district attorney has said she will not face criminal charges. The text messages at issue begin the day Miss Lorraine was picked for the jury. Court documents show. Oh, lucky you, her what? father wrote to her when she told him the news. Make sure he's guilt. Make sure he's guilty, he wrote in another text that same day. She did not answer. Is he guilty? A friend asked her later. Can't tell, she replied. Miss Lorraine received texts during the trial from one friend who called Mr. Newlander scary and from another expressing surprise that his adult daughter was at home at the time of her mother's death and who testified for her father oh. why she was not a suspect. She's never, and I just want to make it clear, she was not ever named as a suspect. Um, in another potential violation of the judge's instruction, Miss Lorraine, a 23-year-old cheerleading coach at the time of the trial, also visited the websites of news organizations that were closely covering the case, according to court documents. Questioned about this later, she lied, doctored some of her text messages, deleted others, and cleared her internet browsing history court filing show. She acknowledged violating the judge's instructions, but didn't say why she had done so. She said that none of the texts had affected her deliberations, which was the Mm -hmm. reason why the judge initially upheld that conviction. But when asked for comment about the ruling by the Court of Appeals, Rick Truffolo, the first chief assistant district attorney, said, We fully intend to retry him for the murder of his wife. A new trial is expected to start in the spring of the following year. The case actually began September 17, 2012, when emergency service workers and police officers arrived at the Newlander home in the town of DeWitt to find Leslie Newlander, 61, with a severe head injury. She was soon pronounced dead. Newlander told the police that his wife who he and others said had a history of vertigo, had fallen in the shower and banged her head. He said her lifeless body was some 60 feet away in her blood-spattered bedroom when officers arrived because he had moved it there in a bid to keep her alive. Okay. Um, 
this actual death stunned Syracuse where the Newlanders with Dr. Newlander, an obstetrician gynecologist, had delivered thousands of babies, and the couple was well-known for their philanthropy and devotion to local charities. They were in the process of separating at the time of her death. The medical examiner initially ruled the death an accident, largely based on his account, but the amount of blood in the bedroom where she was found left the authorities with nagging suspicions that mm, something wasn't quite right. Two years later, he was charged with killing his wife and trying to cover it up. Um, the prosecutors, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, in summation that he had attacked his wife in their bed, continued the attack in the bedroom, and then the bathroom where the fatal blow was delivered, likely wow. against the shower bench to make it look like her injuries were caused by a fall. So maybe she had crawled into, that's why they have that trail of blood. He had injured her already, and she had crawled into mm. the bathroom, and he had whacked her head against the bench. Maybe, maybe the reason why there's no murder weapon, um, I don't know. In any case... That's what the prosecutor and police believe happened. And that after that, he shouted to his daughter to call 911 and carried the body back to the bedroom. He did not testify during his trial. The jury took about 18 hours to find him guilty of second-degree murder Mm -hmm. and evidence tampering. So that was the charges that were against him. He was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. And then that's when the inquiry into the juror's behavior began. After the hearing, the judge ruled that she'd engaged in misconduct but had not been biased and the verdict should stand, as I mentioned. The decision was set off the appeals process that resulted in the ruling last week, and one notable aspect of that ruling, the judge, or excuse me, the Court of Appeals found that Miss Lorraine had committed misconduct, deceit, and destruction of evidence, depriving Mr. Newlander of his right to a fair trial, but it, too, did not find that she had been biased in reaching the verdict. So it's interesting. They didn't say that she was biased in reaching the verdict. They just said she had misconduct, which could impact the fairness of the trial. So we're going to let him have another trial, which is interesting. Very interesting. Um, More texts from her included ones where she said, I'll tell you about it soon. And I can't talk about it, she wrote in another. So she's trying to be a little bit impartial. But the fact that she's researching stuff and looking on the Internet um, shows that she really didn't. Either she didn't take seriously her role as a juror or didn't understand right. the so seriousness it like of what she was doing. She was receiving texts about the case and that when she she either didn't respond or when she did respond, she was vague or saying, I cannot talk about it. But then on her own, she did go and do some yeah. outside research. Okay. Yes. Yes. So she said as well, like in reality, someone's life is in our hands. We could send an innocent man to prison or put a murderer away. So she, she did understand that there was some gravity to her role in this case. But at the same yeah. time, 7,000 messages and you're researching and then you delete it all and try to hide it. And it just it shows that there was, you know, some crazy stuff going on. Now, does right. that mean that he's not well, guilty? Not at all. It has no impact on that because they clearly ruled that it didn't have an impact on the decision that she made. But at the same time, they're going to retry this case. I mean, it's kind of like you can't unring that bell. So whether or not they rule that it didn't have bias, like she did know information that the other jurors did not know. Right. And like your role in the jury is to only. Right examine the evidence that is presented in trial. It's not to go out and do your own research and make your own opinion. So. Whether or not that they they found that that influenced her decision, she you can't you can't unsee that information. You know what I mean? So, I I mean I certainly agree with that. Like that's just it's crazy that I don't. I thought that in murder cases they sequestered the jury. I mean, not every time. If it's like a really high profile, they should. 
If it yeah. means somebody spending the rest of their life in jail, I think that the jury should be sequestered because you have cases like this where people either don't understand the gravity of what's going on or, or don't understand that you shouldn't be looking at your damn cell phone during the case and researching. Like, you need to just take the evidence that you have, and people don't understand that. And I think that's why that there is that need for sequestering in order to provide a fair trial. Yeah, I, I think it probably comes down to funding and like the city too. So whether or not they determine that it, they need to, they're they're able to sequester a jury for that long, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a a serious issue because our justice system is founded upon the principles that you are innocent until proven guilty and that every person deserves a fair trial. And Mm -hmm. is that a fair trial when you've got people that are allowed to just look up on their cell phone and, and decide, you know, factors that were not provided to the court to make the decisions? Is right, you're no trial? longer an impartial juror at that point. And then you've got other people who are like, oh, you better find this guy guilty, and he's a douchebag, and you should do this, and you should do that, right. impacting them as well. Like, I just, like, it, it impacts that severely. Right, and there's a reason that, like, the judge determines what evidence can and cannot be presented, because the idea is to provide you as the juror an objective argument of the case. It's not for you to go out and look and decide your own opinion based on what a reporter is writing. Right. I mean, so yeah, it's, there's a lot going on with this case and at the risk of sounding biased, I, I, I think he did it. I think he killed her. I think it's just way too much evidence that just really goes against a simple slip and fall in the shower in order to, for me to really believe that that happened. Yeah, it would be it'll be interesting in the retrial, which there's not a date for that, right? No, they don't have a date set. They said sometimes spring. So I would imagine that in the spring of 2020 is when that's going to happen. It'll be interesting to see what evidence they present. I personally would like to see more uh, research and expert testimony on blunt force trauma injuries and less on blood splatter evidence because actually the year that they brought him to trial the first time 2014 was the same year that the FBI released their you know statement and their report on the validity of some of these types of evidence like that fiber evidence hair evidence blood splatter evidence all of these are coming under under questionable validity and it's Mm -hmm. how actually scientific the, the methods are into studying that and so I think it'll be interesting to see what they present this time around. Like well, blood splatter evidence one, is just is, I, is is shaky. I'm like 99 to 100 percent certain they're going to sequester the jury <laughs> this time around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lesson um, learned. And then the second t- thing is they've got they have about they've had all this time to review the the notes and the weaknesses mm-hmm. and the strengths and prepare for this. So my guess mm-hmm. is they're going to go with things they think are the strongest and get rid of the things they used the first time around that didn't come off so well. Yeah. And tighten up their case. Yeah. Well, so is the, de- so is the defense too, right? So it'll be, it'll be very interesting. But the other thing about the vertigo thing that you mentioned that I want to kind of just discuss very briefly is people have episodes mm-hmm. of vertigo, and that doesn't necessarily accompany a medical diagnosis. But if somebody has a history of vertigo, I need somebody other than a personal trainer to tell me. Right. And yeah. I need, I need actual documented evidence that somebody has a history of falling in the shower for me to just accept that. Yeah. No offense to personal trainers. I mean, a lot of them have the same undergraduate degree as I do. It's, it's, it's a perfectly fine occupation. I just don't rely on you to provide me concrete evidence that somebody has vertigo. Like, yeah. that, I'm just, I need somebody else to tell me that. That was humorous when I saw that. I was like, according to a personal trainer, she had right. a history of vertigo. <laughs> it's like, right. I, like, I need, I need more, I need more, I need 
I need better documentation of a history of vertigo for me to accept that that she fell and hit her head multiple times, which, you know, kind of also made me think about the Coronado mansion case. She also yeah. had multiple head injuries and the, the, the sheriff's department there said, Oh, well she clearly, when she, you know, threw herself over the railing with her hands right. and feet bound, so crazy. she hit her head multiple times. No, she didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it's just, I, I think that they got into an argument and he chased her into the bathroom and in his mind he was like, this is perfect. Or maybe he'd been thinking about it for a long time. But to right. ram her head against the sho- something in the shower. Right. Uh, that, like that is the murder weapon if it's the case, that, that the, sh- the bench in the shower. Yeah, but it was my understanding that the injury from her head didn't necessarily match up with the tile on the edge or the way it would look with a linear, you know what I mean? Well, if, if he hit her twice, which it sounds like there were two fractures. Okay. If he hit her twice, yeah. it wouldn't have um, a very distinct, clear pattern like it would for okay. a single blow. Okay. You know what that I mean? That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Very interesting case. Um, yeah. I look forward to seeing what comes out with it earlier. I just, one thing that I struggle with in this case is there's really no, in many of these cases, you have the case where there's this woman, this other woman. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, or there's this huge insurance payout, or like, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, yeah, he did it. But this right. case, there was no other woman kind of lingering in the side. So I was just like, why would he kill her? It well, just, uh, like, it's, do you I mean, think it's it was like heat, heat of the moment, heat of the passion, and he didn't mean to, and it just happened, and he got so enraged that he lost his mind for a short period of time? Like, I, I just. It's so hard to tell. There's so little information about their relationship prior to this. You know, we had no, a couple. It says from every indication from friends and family, they had an exceptional relationship. They'd been together for 28 years. They just everybody says they were this delightful couple. So right, but then somebody else also they wrote the DA because they after were on the, the verge of being separated. He was a bad guy, yeah, yeah. So what do we really know? Like that's what it appeared, but what do we really know? Like there's just not a whole lot of information about their relationship prior to this. So it's hard to kind of come up with a motive. I mean, the only thing we really know is that they seem to have been undergoing some financial troubles. Yeah. And they were on the verge of separating because everybody knew that. Right. So that's all we have to go on. Right. So like, was it, you know what, you didn't mention anything about life insurance payout. I'm not sure if he would have received it or if his kids would have gotten it or something like that. But you, you know, I don't know if there if that was involved or if he just didn't want to pay for their divorce. Like, I don't I mean, there's too little information for me to make like a speculation yeah, about it. Super, super interesting case. though. Yeah, it is. It really is. And this is the point where I think we're going to wrap the podcast up. Say so long. Farewell. Please rate, review and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions or you have some additional information about this case, like I would be happy to provide that to the listeners if you know something that we haven't provided here, send us an email. We would love to hear about it. Um, We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com social media, Darcy. We are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So you can follow us and interact with us there as well. We're going to post some pictures related to this case on there this week and the house and just super, super interesting case for the week. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>